You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. To the book of Judges. We are still in chapter 1, finishing chapter 1 and going over into part of chapter 2 tonight. It's been said by some that Judges is a crude book. People think it's barbaric. This picture of Israel is not very spiritual. It's very earthy. It's grotesque. In fact, it's just like us. Those who frown upon the bloody behaviors of Old Testament Israel, I think, kind of naively turn a blind eye to much of the violence we find in our own age. Just turn on the television. Look at your daily newspaper, and we must really question whether we are really all that more civilized than these Old Testament-era saints. The book of Judges ends with this word of condemnation, a, a summary statement that shows up twice, describing in some form uh, the spirit of the age in Israel in that day. It says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think that same description would very aptly describe our day as well. Whether we're in the west or the east or anywhere around the world. Now, what we'll come across in this passage I'm about to read is the beginning of an interior deterioration, kind of like a, a large tree that is rotting up from the very center with termites or some sort of parasite that is just rotting and crumbling from the inside out. We see that Israel's military units are not as effective as they were under Joshua. We see the tribal unity beginning to disintegrate. And as we'll see at the end, God indicts them for their lack of covenant faithfulness. Now, there are some who look at judges as kind of the the Old Testament superheroes. But in fact, in the book of Judges... And in all of the Bible, there is only one superhero, and that is God himself. God, we see God in his greatness. And as we continue to lay the context for this entire book that we'll be studying in months to come, we will see God's greatness on display over and over again. And I hope we'll receive the humble lesson of how spiritually weak and needy, dependent, and dependent God's people are upon this great God. I will begin reading in chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak, The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites, who are living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with 
the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he had built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Abliam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into, into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or Alhalab, or Hagzib, or Helba, or Afek, or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh, or Beth Anath. But the, Neph- but the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Hares, Aijalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to, the, to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bakim. But there, but there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. This is God's holy word. Father, we ask that the meditations of our hearts and our minds and our lips I be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray through Jesus' name. Amen. One of our Sunday practices that you'll find us doing, perhaps once or twice a month, if not more, is making waffles. I'm known as the waffle chef in our house, and earlier this year, We indulged a little further. We had our old two-waffle iron that 
didn't la lasted us for years, but it was time to, we outgrew it, so it was time to get the four waffle irons. Now we can make six at a time. So I, I beat my egg whites and get them fluffy, and I pour in the flour and the brown sugar and the buttermilk and all these things. And I've even taught my children the indulgent practice of putting peanut butter and syrup on their waffles. So that's one of our traditions. We are waffle lovers. But the practice of waffling is something that uh, we, don't, we don't look at with favor. Waffling is to turn on one's commitment. People who waffle are considered flaky. People who do not keep their word. Politicians get themselves into trouble by making a statement, taking a position in public, but then changing their position, they're, and their enemies attack them, calling them flip-floppers, accusing them of waffling, as opposed to sticking to their guns. Well, I can assure you that uh, it's much easier to make waffles. It's, in fact, much easier to, it's just as easy to make commitments or make promises as it is to make waffles. What is far more difficult is to keep those commitments and stick to it. What we find in, in and among the Israelites at this time as they settle into the land of Canaan is that they are beginning to waffle. They are wavering in their commitment to God. Their fidelity to God's covenant is on the wane. God had promised to be with them. His presence was evident in the astounding victories that Joshua had in the initial stages of the conquest of Canaan. Now Joshua was gone. Perhaps the people questioned whether God had abandoned them. He had not. It's very clear in our text that God was still with them. The real question then is would Israel stick to the mission God had given them? Would, he, would they obey his commands? Would they listen to God's word or seek their own wisdom? Would they trust in God's power or try to rely on their own strength? Well, I believe that our ancient forefathers in their waffling are quite similar to us. In fact, we are quite similar to them. In our weakness, we are tempted to waver in our own spiritual commitment. And the solution for us, as it was for them so long ago, the solution to spiritual waffling is to feed on Christ. To be grounded in the one who can help us to stand fast and firm. I want to look at our passage tonight, firstly, to see, in fact, that the Lord was with his people. God had promised to be with them. They would not be alone. This battle of conquest would not be done at a mere human strength, but reliance upon the power of God. This series of successes we find in the first 18 and a half verses of chapter 1 are capsulized with this summary of God's statement that he was with Judah. And we go back and see how Judah and Simeon were united, and they conquered city after city. They took Jerusalem as well. 
And here we come to verse 19, and it says that Judah had taken the hill country. But then we hear the first note of discord. All was no longer well in Israel. Something is missing. The men of Judah were not able to take the plains. Why? The Canaanites had superior military technology. They had iron chariots, something Israel did not have. And so we can come to this little detail and ask, well, is this a legitimate reason for the men of Judah not to take the plains, the flatlands, as well as the hill country? Well, the commentator, the author, does not have any commentary on this particular detail. But I'm convinced that the context is clear that the answer is no. This was not a legitimate excuse for Judah not to take the plains as well. Pharaoh had chariots. That was not a problem for God. In chapter 4 of this book, Barak and Deborah take on Sisera and his 900 chariots. Even later in Israel's history, wicked King Ahab will conquer Ben-Hadad of Syria with all of his chariots. This superior technology was no excuse for failure to take and seize the land in conquest. I think the subtle underlying reason for their failure was not a lack of military might or power or equipment, but rather was the same fear that had gripped the ten spies who brought back a negative report decrying to the people of Israel that there were giants in the land and that the land swallowed them up whole. This was the same fear that gripped King Saul's heart and paralyzed his men, quaking in their boots before Goliath. The thing we find in Scripture is that when God commands something that's impossible for us to fulfill with our own resources. That's because it is impossible for us to fulfill with our own resources. People who believe God at his word, that he is with them in the battle, can face anything. And no excuses are acceptable. Recently, we were re-watching one of our favorite films, the Facing the Giants movie that some of you have, I'm sure, seen. A Christian movie about a high school football team and a coach who's kind of down and out and hard on his luck, so to say. And at the beginning of this football season, the team loses their star running back. He transfers to another school. And so the team is despondent, complaining, making excuses. They go on to lose their first three games. The players are unmotivated. The parents are uh, conspiring to get the coach fired. Everything's a mess. And then the coach, in the depths of his despair, turns to the Lord to find his consolation and comfort. And a man of God comes to him and prays for him, encourages him, and the coach repents 
of his self-pity, of his excuse-making, of his anger. He redirects his focus and the focus of the team, not just on winning football games, but on seeking to honor the Lord, win or lose. He's tired of seeing players only go half-hearted. He's tired of seeing them not follow through on their commitments. And he shifts the whole mindset of the team to focus on the glory of God as a much higher purpose than winning football games. Well, amazing things begin to happen. Players on the team repent and convert to Christ and come to faith in him. Broken relationships are reconciled in families. In fact, revival breaks out over the whole school, over these radical changes that God is bringing on this football team. And amazingly, week after week, this scrawny band of little players win game after game after game. Until in the climactic scene at the end of the film, after a big win, the coach has the team in the locker room, and he goes to each one individually, asking them, what is impossible with God? And with unison, the players respond, nothing, coach. Nothing is impossible with God. That is the theme of the book of Judges. Israel is facing giants in the land. Gideon will face a Midianite army many, many times the size of his little band of 300. And yet when God had called him to do it, he went by faith, not in military might. For nothing is impossible with God. We turn our attention now to verse 22, and we see this initial theme from verse 19 show up again. As God was with the men of Judah, so he was with Joseph. And Joseph was really two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And these two tribes seize upon the promises of God. They attack the ancient city of Bethel, where their forefather Jacob had received his vision of the stairway to heaven. And it's here we were reminded that the Lord was with the tribe of Joseph. And this has a beautiful echo back to Genesis chapter 39, where we see their forefather Joseph, who had been sold as a slave into Egypt, into the house of Potiphar. Moses tells us at least three times that the Lord was with Joseph. And that is why he prospered in the land of Egypt. And then in this passage, in a parallel account to the story in Joshua where Rahab assists the spies of Joshua, the Lord raises up another informer from Bethel to guide these spies and guide the army so they might take the city by surprise. And there's a lesson here to remind us that the Lord draws allies to his people who shift their allegiance away from the enemy to assist God's people in their time of need. And that, of course, is something that we can't control. God is not predictable. God never does the same thing twice. God may cast an army into the depths of of the sea. God may cause the rain to fall so that the chariot wheels of the enemy army get stuck in the mud. God can even turn the enemy armies attacking Israel upon one another 
as was seen in the days of King Jehoshaphat, facing the looming threat of the Moabites and the Ammonites, a prophet named Jehaziel tells the king and his men these words. This is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Stand firm. Believe. Go out and face them, but the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. This is the God who turned the church's worst enemy into her greatest ally in the Apostle Paul. You know, see, we can't figure God out. We cannot get ahead of God. We have to follow him. Trust him at his word. Believe his promises and not waffle. Stand our ground. Stick to your guns. One of the worst things that we can do is turn our eyes off of Jesus. Like Peter as he walked out onto the sea with the Lord, looking at his circumstances and falling into the water sinking. It's when we look to our own wisdom, when we rely upon our own strength, that we begin to waffle. And that's what we see in verses 27 to the end of chapter 1, verse 36. As you scan this list of disappointments and setbacks and deterioration, you'll find not one reference to God. His name, the Lord, is is, is shockingly absent. Israelite struggles in all their battles, and yet not one time is it recorded that they cry out to God for help. In the midst of this hodgepodge of fighting, some successes, some setbacks, what we find is a spirit of compromise and a lack of fidelity to God's covenant. You'll see this repeated utterance of failure. It begins in verse 27 with the tribe of Manasseh. It says, they did not drive out the Canaanites. And the author describes the Canaanites as determined to dwell there. Apparently more determined to be there than God's people were determined to obey his command. Nor did the Ephraimites, in verse 29, nor were they faithful in driving out the uh, inhabitants of their land. And in fact, we see kind of the unraveling of the unity of the tribes of Joseph as they're no longer united, no longer successful in battle, So as they drift from the Lord, they drift from one another, not depending upon one another's strength. But you notice something as you look at verse 28 and verse 30, there is a new phrase here. Not only did they not drive out the inhabitants, it says, they pressed, it says, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor. Well, if you go back to Joshua, if you go back to the writings of Moses, you find very clearly God's command to his people that they were called to annihilate the Canaanites, to completely wipe them out. This was God's judgment. These were a condemned people. They were not to be tolerated lest they lead Israel astray. 
by their false worship, their idolatry, and their gross immorality. But rather than obey God's word, the Israelites look to their own wisdom. They stick to their own reasoning and make a deal and decide to check the Canaanites with their superiority to force them into servitude. Why? Perhaps Israel felt sorry for the Canaanites. That's a possibility. Many people today look with sympathy upon the Canaanites and think it just an appalling thing that Israel would uh, conduct a holy war. And I'll address the issue of holy war uh, in a few moments. But I think beyond just uh, human sympathy, I think there was a spirit of expediency. This was an act of laziness. They took the easy route. You see, it, it's, the command of God is difficult to fulfill. I mean, we can only imagine the Canaanites would have resisted annihilation far more fiercely than signing a peace treaty to subject themselves to servitude. In fact, it was a bad precedent set during Joshua's day where he fell under the ruse of the Gibeonites who deceived him and his men, and they signed a covenant with the people of Gibeon. That's when Joshua and his men failed to consult the Lord. So this generation of Israelites had a bad precedent to follow. They increasingly began to trust in their own wisdom. And perhaps this generation didn't want to mess with the, the, the difficulty and the dirtiness of conquest and annihilation. And besides, why kill off all this cheap labor? These people would be their water carriers, their servants. Help them maintain that, that nice standard of living to make things cozy. And they've worked hard. They deserve it. And so at the cost of compromising their children and their children's children, watering down their commitment to raise up their children in the fear of the Lord, they put their children in the midst of these pagans, perhaps seeking to bolster their standard of living. And so jeopardize and compromise and weaken the faith of their children who would grow to forsake the Lord and his ways. It's a powerful lesson for us. We have to be leery because we get lazy. We make compromises with the world. We get tired of the devil tempting us over and over and over with all of our weaknesses. We get tired of having to resist the same temptations and struggles. We're tired of dealing with the flesh, and so we make a pact. I'll just let this go. We do this in our minds. We do this in our marriages, in our close relationships. I won't go near your sin. You won't go near mine. And so we compromise. And we don't leave our hearts exposed before the living God. We harden ourselves. And like Israel, who enjoyed pragmatic success, perhaps, in the eyes of the world, but were renounced with spiritual failure. Israel was dominant, but not obedient. 
They enjoyed superiority but lacked fidelity. And likewise, a Christian can bear all the marks of success and still be a failure in the sight of God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for washing the outside of the cup, but on the inside there was filth and immorality and idolatry and things that needed to be brought forth into the light that it might be expunged by the grace and mercy of God. With Israel, what began as toleration grew into apostasy. What seemed reasonable at first became lethal. Living with the Canaanites became worshiping with the Canaanites. I do want to address the issue of holy war. Pastor Light addressed it briefly last week. I want to add another touch to it, and I'm sure we'll come back to it again some in weeks, in weeks to come. But what do we do with this issue? Um, perhaps it's more appropriate for the book of Joshua with the command to engage conquest and slaughter and killing every man, woman, and child. This horrific scene of what was in the Old Testament idea of placing these pagan peoples under the ban as a, as a pronouncement of God's judgment upon them. People in modern sensibility look upon that with great horror, and we sympathize with uh, that uh, response at first. But my, my challenge back to the skeptic who questions the Bible and its morality, my, my first question is this, what right do modern Westerners, who engorge themselves on violent entertainment, who tolerate abortion, who turn a blind eye away from the injustices of sex and childhood trafficking that we find on a global scale, what right do we have to pass such judgment upon ancient Israel? That would be my first response to such malicious attacks. But then we should go on to point out the facts. At least three times in the writings of Moses, we get a glimpse of what these people were like. One is in Deuteronomy 9, where Moses has to remind Israel the reason for the conquest. He says, it was not because of Israel's righteousness. It was not because you're a good people and you're worthy and you're cute. No. It was because it was on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. In Leviticus 18, we see this long litany of lists of sexual, sexually deviant practices engaged in by the Canaanites. And it goes on to say to Israel, If you defile the land... It will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. That's pretty strong language. And then there's another list of abominations in Deuteronomy 18. And Moses writes, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, engages in witchcraft, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things 
is detestable to the Lord. And because these detestable practices, the Lord will drive out these nations before you. There's even uh, intertestamental literature and, and the wisdom literature that's not canonical scripture that gives detailed lists of the practices of these pagan peoples. They were ripe for judgment. And for the moderner, the modern person who presumes to be more moral than the Bible, more moral than God, needs a, a humble reminder that God is the only perfectly just one. And were it not for his mercy, all of us would deserve and receive a punishment worse than the Canaanites. We are grateful that we live in this day and age, and holy war is not a part of God's mission and program. That was for a select time and a select purpose. And yet that age of holy war is a foreshadowing of the terrible judgment that will fall on all sinners who refuse to repent and turn to Christ. And so in this age, our conquest is mercy. Our conquest is to plead with every man, woman, and child to turn to Christ, to be weary about the judgment to come, to make sure that your soul is secure in the protection of Christ, that Christ alone is the salvation of sinners that we be spared the judgment to come through Christ, who alone took our punishment for us. His mercy, his blood shed on the cross. Another illustration to think about this age of conquest. Imagine if you were diagnosed with cancer, a large tumor somewhere in the internal, the mid part of your body, and you went to surgery on, on the specified day, and the surgeon goes in and discovers that about 80% of that tumor was easy to get. But then there was 20% of that tumor was, was wrapped around a vital organ, and it was very difficult to get to. And so the surgeon only took the 80%. Now, to not go back in later with radiation or chemotherapy or some other treatment would have made that initial surgery completely pointless. So, like the conquest of Canaan, without following through on the conquest would have been the detriment of all of Israel. Likewise, cancer in the body must be completely Removed. It does not have a right to be there. We should not sympathize with this cancer. It's not a part of us. It is a parasite that must be destroyed and removed. And friends, it's the same way with our sin. Our sin does not belong with us. It does not have a rightful place with us. We must not manage it or we must not take out a separate piece with our sin. God calls us to kill our sin. Jesus wants all of us, not just 80%. Part of us is not enough. And so I ask us tonight, in what ways might we be making compromises with the servants of Baal? 
with the idolatries of our age. We are reminded from this text that we are in the promised land, not America, but as pilgrims in this world, we are passing through, and God promises to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us, and we have a mission. And we can either choose to follow him in our mission to pursue holiness, to seek and win the lost, or we can cave into the ways of the world, loving the pleasures of sin, seeking the comforts of material wealth, being distracted by the delusions of idolatry with wealth and success and entertainment, and seeking all of these things more than the love and the joy of knowing Christ, of receiving the comfort of his love, of glorying in the truth of his holy majesty. The book of Hebrews says of Moses that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. The call of the gospel is a call of renouncing the ways of the world, to come out and be separate, to be holy. And it requires more than good intentions. It's been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There is no room for waffling. We must come and bow and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I turn now to the final section of our passage. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see God's mercy poured out upon this people. As we said earlier that in verses 27 and 36, there was no cry out to God, there was no call for mercy, and yet God responds anyway by sending the angel of the Lord. And the angel comes to rebuke them, to give them a history lesson, to remind them of God's faithfulness in times past, delivering them, liberating them from slavery in Egypt. These people who were pitiful, helpless, without God and without hope in the world. God fulfilling his promise to Abraham, maintaining his commitment to his covenant, and in response, Israel was called to keep their covenant with God and not make a covenant with the Canaanites, but rather tear down their altars of false worship. You see, the Canaanites' main problem was a worship problem. The immorality was merely a consequence of their failure to worship the living God. You become like what you worship. Worship the true God and you will grow in holiness and love. Worship the gods of this age and you will grow more corrupt and vile and worldly. The gods of that age were the fertility cult of Baal and Ashereth, the male and female cohorts of fertility and cult prostitution. There was the wicked god Molech to whom the people of Israel attempted to sacrifice their children to this wicked demon. I don't think we've come all that far in our civilization with abortion, materialism, the sex and slave trade on the 
worldwide global market, we are still bowing down to the gods of Molech, Baal, and Ashtoreth. We need the confrontation of God as well as our forefathers did. Notice the personal nature in which the angel confronts the people Israel. He says, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Some, actually many scholars suppose that this could be a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ as personified, as described as the angel of the Lord. Think about that question. Why, that direct question, why have you done this? Well, there's no answer. There's no good answer. In the words of philosopher Blaise Pascal, the heart has its reasons the mind knows nothing about. Sin is always irrational. It makes no sense. Whether it's caving into peer pressure, yielding to our desires of peace and comfort, pleasure and security at the expense of our faithfulness to Christ. In verse 3, the angel explains the consequences of Israel's caving into their fear and their disobedience. He would no longer drive out the Canaanites. Israel and her armies would now lose the holy presence of God that would no longer strike fear in the hearts of their enemies. As if for God to say, you want to dabble with the pagans and their gods, then I will let you. One of God's worst judgments on his people is to give them over to the tyranny of their sin. You don't want to serve me? Fine, you will serve the gods of this world. The thing is, we are duped. We think we have it by the tail. We think we have our sin under control. And the next thing we know, its jaws have sunk deep within us and are devouring us. And so the pagans become a thorn in the side of God's people. And their gods become a snare to capture them. We're reminded here that obedience is always easier the first time. The second time gets much harder. But how do the people respond? The people respond in verses 4 and 5 with weeping.